Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Nerdfest podcast. Recently Dan recommended the Bone Season series of books for us and this week he was lucky enough to get to speak to their author Samantha Shannon for this episode. It's a really, really fun chat. They talk about her working methods, lots of nerdy stuff, of course, about folklore and dragons. And she even has a recommendation herself for you. So we didn't want to cut it down to fit into one of our regular shows. We've given the interview its own special episode, and we really do hope you enjoy it. I am very pleased to welcome to the Nerdfest podcast the best-selling author of the Bone Season series. It's Samantha Shannon. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Getting used to the world of 2021 being not that different from 2020. Yeah, it's been a it's been a very strange time. Um, I'm still not entirely used to it after all this time. I still sometimes go out and have to go back for my face mask incredibly after literally months of needing one. <laughs> have you found that it's something that's affected how you've approached your writing process? Has the last year felt different for you as an author? It definitely has because um, part of my writing process is that I like to move around a lot. So I tend to drift between cafes or sometimes I might write at a friend's house or outside and it's been a little bit more limited obviously because I've been mostly in my own apartment um which is you know obviously that's a a privilege because I get to work from home so my job hasn't been badly affected by the pandemic but it has been interesting in terms of how it's stagnated my craft a little because I don't have this free roam that I usually do. I'm about 10 minutes walk away from some of the places you described in book three in Edinburgh but this new book The Mask Falling is set in Paris Did you get a chance to write any of it in Paris itself or explore the city? Oh, yes, I did. Um, I've been to Paris several times. It's probably my favourite city in the world. And I actually wrote some of the scenes in the book um, in the same buildings that the scenes unfold in. I love epic fantasy, but I also love dystopia. And something I've noticed about dystopian fiction is that often it's set in one city or one country or one small community. And what I wanted to do with the series was try to combine the two genres and move them between different locations so you can see the dystopia from different perspectives and different angles. So, yeah, it's it's Edinburgh, Manchester, Paris, London, Oxford. We're all over the place. (laughs) Have you got anywhere else in mind that you could potentially go to in the rest of the series? Yes, definitely. Um, I can't spoil exactly where it's going yet, but we're definitely widening the scope with each book, which I find very exciting. Yeah, having read all four of the books in the lead up to this new one coming out, there's a definite feel of that expansion going on. Several of the books, including this new one, end on massive cliffhangers. And I was really glad that I could just move from one to the other and find out what happened. But how fun are those to actually write and construct? I do love a cliffhanger because I I write very long books. So in order to keep the reader engaged in such a extensive narrative, I try to make each chapter finish on a little cliffhanger, just a small hook for the reader to want to turn the next page. I'm kind of alternating cliffhangers because the first book, the cliffhanger wasn't particularly bad. And the third book also wasn't too bad. But then the second and the fourth books finish in these absolutely brutal cliffhangers. So I feel I really need to get writing the fifth one because I feel very bad leaving readers hanging after the end of book four. I almost didn't want to finish reading it because I sensed that something big was about to happen and that I was going to have to wait to find out. 
And I have to ask, uh, Paige, the hero of the series, goes through a lot, not just in this book, but through the whole series. Uh, Do you ever feel bad about putting your characters through such torment or is that quite enjoyable to write as well? I actually do feel bad about it. I I'm I joke a bit online and I pretend like I I don't feel it, but actually it's really painful to me putting the characters through a lot of suffering. One of the most important things in the series for me is that everything that happens to her does have an impact on her and you can see that impact rippling out through the book. So for example, she broke her wrist in the first book and she's still experiencing the consequences of that in the fourth book. Because there is this need for forward momentum in any narrative, the things that are actually happening tend to get swept under the carpet a bit because you can't just pause the narrative to explore what the character is going through on a really deep psychological and physical level. Um, But I really wanted to do that with The Bone Season because I have so many books. You know, it's a seven book series. I can afford to take the time to really explore Paige's mental and physical state and that happens a lot in the mask falling because she's suffering from the consequences of what she's gone through in the previous book um but yeah I I do enjoy it even though it it, it does hurt me I'm not I'm not a cruel person I hope (laughs) it's um something that I found really worked because it's the kind of supernatural world that also feels very realistic it's real recognizable identifiable people but in a world with clairvoyance and ether and other things that I won't necessarily spoil for people who haven't read any of the books yet. But has it been tricky trying to balance those two worlds or did they mesh quite well? They meshed pretty well. I mean, that you're definitely right in that part of why I've focused so heavily on realistic aspects of the world is in order to ground it because it is not just epic fantasy it's also dystopia and I like the grittiness of the dystopian genre I like the fact that it feels so close to the bone and so close to our reality so I liked grounding the fantasy by setting it in our world like a, it gives you an anchor it does but I don't know if we should talk about the anchor <laughs> yeah sorry bad choice of words <laughs> um for those who haven't read the books that is the symbol of uh the bad guys the dystopian government who is in charge of of pages world and they came to power in a way about 200 years ago that interested me because uh one of the things i'm a nerd about is history and as well as this alternate future you've set up you've got a kind of alternate mm-hmm. past for the last couple of centuries and poor King Edward VII uh, goes through a terrible time in the books. And I'd be fascinated to see whether his story ever gets told in full. Uh, not that he was a nice man in real life, of course, but uh, he's definitely got a bad reputation. He does have a very bad reputation that is that is brought up in the background of the book. I mean, it's interesting because when I pitched the book to my agent for the first time, the event that splits the Bone Season timeline from ours is this specific event in 1859. And I remember my agent said to me, why did you choose this specific date in 1859? And it's because there was actually a massive solar storm that happened on that day. And it was so bright that people were waking up thinking it was dawn in the middle of the night. And I I thought that seemed like a good real life event to make into something supernatural. So that's what I decided to do. And that's why I chose that particular date. 
but yeah, they're trying to thread through the real history, like Edward VII, and toying with the royal conspiracies around Jack the Ripper, and actually integrating the Ripper into the narrative and other kind of Victorian events. It was a really interesting process, and I got to do that much more in the Mask Falling, where you find out a bit more about how Jack the Ripper factors into the the present narrative. It is kind of a fun experience writing an alternate history as well, because obviously I've set the book in 2059, that's when it starts, but it means that some of the characters in the books are already technically born in our timeline, like Jackson Hall, who is Paige's boss, he was born in 2011. So it's always kind of fun to think, oh, Jackson's 10 years old today. <laughs> it's, it's a really strange thing. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a fun way of thinking about it. And Jackson is a character that jumps off the page for me. He's a lot of fun to read about. And I imagine if the books get a screen adaptation, he's got the potential to be a scene stealer. Is he a lot of fun to write? Yeah, he definitely is. I mean, I love writing Paige, who's the main character, specifically her relationship with Arcturus, who is this immortal supernatural creature. And I, I really enjoy the the interplay between those two characters. But Jackson has always been my favourite just on a purely fun level because he's incredibly over the top. He uses this very ostentatious language, which is always fun because I'm a huge language nerd. And he also just says what he thinks. He's not really restrained by morality or courtesy. So if he doesn't like someone, if you think someone's an idiot, he will just say it. And there is something <laughs> quite liberating about that, as, as strange as it sounds. It's, he's, he's just good fun, just purely because of the massiveness of his character. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely larger than life. And you can see that in his language. And we are a nerdy podcast, so it's it's good to hear you're a language nerd. What is your favourite nerdy thing about language? And have you got other things that you are a nerd about? Uh, language is my kind of specific nerdy thing. I'm very, very interested in etymology and where words came from and the the elements that make up words and how they've changed over time. Um, it's an interest that started when I was at university because I studied uh, English language and literature. That was my degree. And during the the course I was doing, I learned about Old English, and that was completely fascinating. So I remember they handed me this book of Old English, and was they you know they were like read this poem, and it looked like you know a totally different language. It had runes. It was it was completely <laughs> alien, and it was such an interesting process unpicking this language and connecting it to the language we use now and seeing the links between them. And I've ended up taking that interest into my own work because um, not not so much in the bone season that it mainly came out in my standalone novel, The Priory of the Orange Tree, because um, I was trying to think of how to name the characters. And I ended up creating this really intense naming system where I was drawing from old languages like Sumerian and Gothic and like proto languages to create names. And it was just it was just great fun. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I, I loved building names out of these kind of dead, extinct and hypothetical languages. So yeah, I am a bit of a nerd and often I'll post on my Twitter like where this specific name came from and how I constructed it, which is probably a little bit intimidating. It's, it's kind of a running joke with some of my friends as well, because um, I have a few friends who are fantasy writers and they will just say, well, I just kind of bash the keyboard to create names, but you know, you go ahead and have this 7,000 word etymology document. <laughs> so it's a, it's a little bit uh, intimidating, but it's just, it's just my little hobby, which is, it's nice because, you know, my hobby was writing when I was younger and then that became my job. So it is quite nice to have a, 
a little nerdy interest to pursue, even though it is like the absolute height of nerdery. <laughs> like even my parents tease me about it. They're like, yo, are your readers really that interested in, in words? Like, is that really your thing? <laughs> you don't want to go out to like a nightclub or something? <laughs> Well, uh, speaking as one of the people on a podcast called Nerd Fest, uh, you can never be too much of a nerd, I think. <laughs> I agree. The Priory of the Orange Tree is a little bit more of a high fantasy book, is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about that book and how it, it's apart from the Bone Season? Yeah, of course. I wasn't actually going to write anything outside the Bone Season series until it was finished, but... I had quite a difficult time with The Song Rising, which is the third book in the series. I've, every single author I've spoken to has had like at least one book that's given them a massive amount of difficulty, and mine was The Song Rising. I think I basically wrote it more like it was a bridge between the second and fourth books rather than giving it like a strong through line of its own. So I had to do a lot of editorial remedial work on it. And while my editor had it, and she had it for very long periods of time, and I couldn't start the fourth book without knowing what the third book was going to be like. I ended up thinking that I would write about dragons, which I'd always wanted to do, you know, since I was since I was little, I've always loved dragons. Um, and I've always been particularly fascinated by the story of St. George and the dragon. Mm. And at the moment, we're seeing a lot of um, fairy tale and legend and myth reimaginings from different perspectives. And George and the dragons always fascinated me because it it is kind of the the ultimate damsel in distress story. And I thought it could do with a bit of a feminist spin. So I decided to look into the roots of this legend. And I discovered that they are not only much more interesting than I quite realised, it's a much bigger story. And there's a huge amount of versions of the legend of George and the Dragon. Um, lots of interesting features that I hadn't realised were there because the, the version I was told was very simple. But also that it was quite problematic in terms of it's, it's, it's very xenophobic. It's very kind of aggressively Christian in a way that is intolerant of other religions. And obviously, the legend is used as a kind of white nationalist foundation. So I decided I really wanted to interrogate this and try to unpick it and confront it and challenge it in some way. And that's where the Priory of the Orange Tree came from. It's essentially a retelling it in a way that made far more sense to me um, as a woman and it's sort of a dismantling of the, the damsel in distress trope um and yeah that's that's kind of what it is fundamentally that sounds really good i will make sure to pick that up and give it a read next but i have to ask about dragons uh what's your favorite thing about dragons they are great we all know this but what particularly do you love about dragons when my dragon obsession started was when I saw Dragonheart back in the day. Yes, Dragonheart. Yes, it's such an it's such an old classic, Dragonheart. But I think Dragonheart came out either in 1995 or 1996, uh, which is when I was kind of five, six years old because I was born in 1991. And I actually went to the cinema to see it for my birthday. And I remember one of my friends was so scared of the sword fight that she was taken out crying. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was like transfixed <laughs> on the screen. I was just absolutely fascinated by this talking dragon. And I think they just represent pure magic in a way. You know, the conjuring of fire from nowhere, the the flight, the the, the inhumanity of them, but also the the fact that some of them can talk. I, I've always been quite a fan of talking dragons. Um, I, I didn't realize that people seem to feel quite strongly about this, but I've always been a fan of the talking ones. It just makes them a bit more magical. I'm also very interested in how dragons in Asia in general are broadly associated with water and benevolence, whereas in the West, they're more strongly associated with well, the, the devil and evil and fire. 
And it's almost this binary opposites of one another, but we still use the word dragon for both of them. Um, So I also explore that in the Priory of the Orange Tree, and I used it as the basis of its magic system. Dragons are one of these mythological creatures that seem to just appear in all cultures, a little bit like vampires. Everyone seems to have an idea of a dragon, and it does make Mm. me wish that at some point in the past they might have been real it would be nice to think that there was a real Sean Connery dragon around at some point. That would be nice. <laughs> I think I'm a pro-talking dragon because I'm, I'm looking over at my bookshelf and all seven of Naomi Novik's Temeraire books are on there, which combines talking dragons with this world culture and the Napoleonic Wars. So it gets alternate history in there as well. Uh, so I think I'm on the pro side of talking dragons. Dragonheart didn't sway you against them? No, it didn't. Um, I, I mean, I like I like aspects of both. Like there was a part of me that enjoyed Game of Thrones not having talking dragons because it made them slightly more animal and unpredictable. So you can see that Daenerys was struggling to tame them in a way that I think would have been quite different if they could talk. Um, but like I said, I just find the talking heightens the magic for me. I do try to find ways to make them talk in a slightly mysterious way like it's been it's been an interesting process because I looked at Smaug for example in Tolkien and how he has this way of talking that is a bit I don't I don't I can't exactly describe it it's just a bit unlike a human um but he has that kind of arrogance and greed in his voice which I which I kind of liked as well um and I try to make my dragons sound inhuman in some way I don't I don't I try not to make them talk like I think humans would um, but I, I try to really commit to that in all of my books, including The Bone Season, in terms of trying to make non-human characters feel genuinely alien in some ways. So I do try to bring that into the the talking dragons, even though they can communicate verbally with humans. Yeah, that's something that Tolkien does really well with Smaug. And I think one of the best parts of The Hobbit was Benedict Cumberbatch's Smaug and the way that yes. he felt completely different to anything else you'd met yes I thought I thought it was just so funny because you could tell that Benedict Cumberbatch was having the absolute time of his life doing that I don't know if you've seen the videos of him where he's got like the motion capture suit on and he's like crawling and thrashing around and doing these really intense faces it's like wow you've never seen a man love being a dragon so much (laughs) (laughs) yes I'm glad it didn't look like that in the finished film I can't imagine Connery having done the same for Dragonheart. <laughs> no, I would imagine not. It, it's funny, though, because considering how long ago Dragonheart was made, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's like the absolute height of realism. I'm sure if I rewatched it now, I would see the problems with it far more. But I actually always thought he didn't look too bad, the dragon. Like, I believed he was there. I don't know if they used animatronics um, sort of in the way they did with Jurassic Park. I haven't seen it since I was about seven or eight, which is how old I was when it, it came out. And I kind of don't want to go back just in case it's not quite the same and the magic has worn off. So I might keep that dragon in my head. I think I will go back and rewatch it at some point. But I just remember this one moment where Draco, the dragon, is standing in rain. And it did look very, very realistic. And I actually actually am quite a fan of the idea that films should rely more on animatronics than they do on CGI because you get that slight uncanny valley effect nowadays like I often just don't believe that things on the screen are actually there whereas something like Jurassic Park I really did. Yeah I think Jurassic Park is still the pinnacle of that mix of digital effects when you need it but rely on practical effects you can watch that now and they look the same before we move on from from giant lizards um, I was asked by one of our fellow nerds Ian Uh, to ask you this question, totally unrelated to high fantasy, to the bone season. 
but he is becoming a little obsessed with the new Godzilla versus King Kong film, and he wanted me to ask you who you think will win, Godzilla or King Kong. I really have no idea who would win. I feel like there's probably a really intense law around it that I'm missing. Like, um, I, I don't know. I guess, I guess I'll say Godzilla um, just because I have to pick one. Um, he just seems scarier to me. I would agree with you. Uh, Ian is our Godzilla expert. He thinks they're more evenly matched than it might appear. But sadly, no dragons in that one. But one of our other regular features on the podcast is recommending something that we've recently watched or enjoyed playing or enjoyed reading or listening to. Have you got anything you would like to recommend to our listeners? It's a slightly older one, but I don't know if you've seen um, Sense8 on Netflix, which I've I've always thought is a really, really underrated sci-fi TV show. Is that one of the Wachowskis projects? Yes, I, th- I think both of them worked on it, actually. I can sort of see why it got cancelled because it was it was clearly such a massive budget because it was filmed on location in like a lot of countries. But it's essentially about eight people who become psychically connected to one another. And it means that they can share each other's skill sets um, so they can speak each other's languages um, they can, you know, one of them is a brilliant actor, therefore all of them become brilliant actors and they, they have to learn to work together because they're being hunted for this ability. And I've always thought it was incredibly underrated. It's very, very diverse. It's very queer. It's, it's not completely perfect um, in how it deals with certain things, but it is very, very good show in my opinion. I was gutted when it was cancelled, um, but it is still on Netflix and I think it is a really, really good um, I would like more nerds to watch it because it is super nerdy. Well, there's our next recommendation, Sensate on Netflix. Before we go, I would just like to ask what's next on the agenda for you? What are you working on at the moment? So right now I am working on uh, a book that is set in the same universe as The Priory of the Orange Tree. Um, The manuscript is ridiculously massive. I've just passed 300,000 words and I'm comforting myself with the fact that Brandon Sanderson, I think, writes books that are something like 450,000 words long. So I'm just, I just keep telling myself it's not as long as what Brandon Sanderson's written just over and over again um so I'm slightly terrified of giving it to my publisher um but yeah so that's that's my current project and then as soon as that's done I am taking a two-week break because I've been working on this book for over a year pretty much without without a break and then I will be jumping straight into the fifth bone season book so those are my two main projects for this year will be juggling writing and editing those two projects that all sounds very exciting indeed and when it comes to fantasy, I don't think any book is too long. Again, looking at the bookshelf and seeing The Song of Ice and Fire, I'm sure that word count is well above 400,000. The first Game of Thrones, I think, was something like 280. It's a lot of words, but when it comes to good books, you can never have too many, really. Yeah, no, that's very true. Um, I'm, yeah, the word counts for that series are definitely chunky. <laughs> Oh, well, we are very excited to read what you've got coming next. And uh, The Mask Falling is out now, as are the rest of the Bone Season books and The Priory of the Orange Tree. Uh, Dragonheart is probably available on DVD and Sense8 is on Netflix. Uh, I think that covers everything apart from uh, the the old English books. (laughs) Yeah, um, I would have to look up which books I used at university, but um, they're they're definitely out there. You should 100% check out the old English treasure trove. And uh, where can people find you online if they want to find out more about the books and uh, about anything else that you've got going on? 
You can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as say underscore Shannon. I won't tell you the embarrassing story of why that's my Twitter name. And also on Tumblr, I'm S Shannon author. Brilliant. Well, uh, Samantha Shannon, thank you very much for joining us on the Nerdfest podcast. Thank you so much for having me.